there is a maxim that hindsight is 2020. The expression captures the idea that, when looking back upon events, that is, hindsight, everything becomes clear and obvious. 2020. The expression exploits the generally common knowledge that the metric 2020 describes normal good vision, though many people have better eyesight than that, and far more have worse. As an expression, hindsight is 2020 captures, from the individual to the cultural level, the feeling that some thing or things should have been obvious. Everything from successful surprise attacks carried out in wartime to unsuccessful relationships that should have ended sooner than they did. Indeed, all sorts of happenings have been the focus of hindsight and the 2020 vision that it inexplicably has. Psychologists refer to this phenomenon as the hindsight bias. It is the idea that, in retrospect, people overestimate how predictable an event was. Thoughts like, it was obvious, the indications were everywhere, and I should have seen it coming, fall within this ambit. Conjecture about the unknown is an inescapable human curiosity. Not only do we love to retrospectively apply our knowledge to the past and consider how we should have, would have acted differently, but we also savor the chance to speculate on that which is yet to come. The future. Good morrow, everybody. My name is Ben Laboot, and welcome to the season two finale of Stories of Symmetry, revealing beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. When looking at the entirety of life, the possibilities of what can happen between birth and death are utterly fascinating. Take, for example, John Adams, of American fame. I wonder if that son of a deacon and farmer, who in his early years evaded education, yet in whose adolescence became a formidable scholar and, even for a brief time, a teacher himself, did that young man, questioning his vocation, have the slightest suspicion that he would die at the age of ninety, having been instrumental in the formation of a nation like none that the world had ever seen, having led that nation as a congressional delegate, an ambassador, a vice president, and even the president, and that he would survive all but one of the fifty-four other inimitable men who, alongside Adams, signed their names to a treasonous document that would alter the course of humanity by declaring that all human beings have inalienable rights given them by God and God alone, so irrefragably constitutional that when they become scorned by the authorities designed to protect them, the people have a sacred duty to cast off their oppressors and instantiate a new order. Did that young Boston lawyer ever dream that he would begin a new nation? Or take David one of the most famous Israelites, who began life as the youngest of no fewer than eight brothers. As a shepherd in the hill country, I wonder if, when he was tending his flock, he supposed that at the time of his death, he would have ruled his country as king for forty years, and he would have done so in a manner that earned him the honorable sobriquet of Israel's greatest king. 
and that 1,000 years after his death, the Messiah himself would boast membership in his, that is, David's, bloodline. This ineffable concept, this realization of all the unforeseen events that can happen in one's life, is captured by a Muslim tradition in the five knowledges reserved for Allah, as enumerated in chapter 34 of the Quran. One of those is the nature of the womb. Another is the land in which a person will die. The idea is that, when a woman is pregnant, none but God can foresee what her womb holds. This is not so banal as asking if the child will be male or female. Rather, it is akin to acknowledging that God alone knows that child's destiny, just like it is God alone who knows when and how one's life will end. As a parenthetical note, the five knowledges of Allah are found in Surah Luqman verse 34. They are 1. The hour of the judgment day 2. How much rain will fall 3. What a mother holds in her womb 4. How much a person will earn tomorrow and 5. The land in which a person will die Today, we are looking forward. Or more specifically, we are looking at the ways in which the Bible looks forward. If you are familiar with how the Bible ends, then you know that the final document composing the anthology of the Christian Bible is starkly different than many of its consociate texts. The final book is referred to as a Revelation of John, and usually shortened to Revelation. In Greek, its name is Apocalypsis, and it is the book about the eschatological apocalypse. The stories about the Antichrist and the Beast, the two prophets, the seven churches, the four horsemen, the lake of fire, and much more are from this document. But it makes one wonder why this text concludes the Bible. Are such apocryphal terrors the fitting conclusion to the chronicle of the interactions between God and mankind? Perhaps it is the most logical place to end. After all, what follows the end of the world? The final judgment? The last battle? These are, in a way, a fitting conclusion to it all. And yet, while one, especially a believer, can read John's revelation with optimistic expectation, knowing that in the end there is victory for the protagonists, there is no hiding its grim and lurid backdrop. However, if you read not to, but through the book of Revelation, then the final chapters will feel like emerging from a tunnel or lifting a thick veil. That's because the story ends with a final vision, not of the world in ashes, but of the world restored, the new Jerusalem, the river of life, and the people of God with their God at the center of it all. The message for us today for this, the final episode of this season, is that, despite all of the bad things that happen in the Bible, it always ends on a note of hope. The first page of the Bible depicts a God who artfully designed the earth and the vast cosmos in which it resides. The next page depicts that same God lovingly crafting human beings and the other multitudes of creatures 
that fill this place called home. But reading on, we hardly make it to page 3 before all begins to unravel. Before even learning the names of the people involved, the first two humans are condemned to lives of moiling agriculture and painful hardship. God goes so far as to post a guard with a flaming sword at the entrance to the paradise now lost to humanity. From there, the madness of humanity waxes, its depravity grows, its vices accumulate. Finally, God said enough. With Noah and the flood, the reset button was pressed. Starting over was promising at first, but alas, the diaphanous threads holding it all together once again unravel. To mend the torn vinculum, God chose a single person in whom there was hope of restoring man and God's fractured relationship. From that starting point, the healing can broaden to the size of a family, and then a clan, and then a nation, and beyond with endless potential. But even with this plan, there was strife by the first generation, and by the grandchildren, the family had split into feuding factions. As time progressed, many forgot about God. But once enough people had cried out, God returned to intervene. A leader of Israel's own blood was appointed as the people's liberator, and he led them to independence as the very presence of God surrounded them. Again, though, the people fell away. Within a year's time, they devolved into a mess of wingers who seemed to have completely forgotten the might of the God who had held their hand thus far. Then, on the very cusp of the fulfillment of God's promise, on the shore of their promised land, the people shrank back, and their lack of faith condemned them to wander until death, having never crossed the Jordan into the land flowing with milk and honey. Even their fearless leader fell short and was himself subject to the same dreary fate. Now you can tell me, gee, Ben, what a depressing tale. It's full of high points, aye, but from a certain overview, with the emphases just provided, the trend line is a downward slope, a steep declivity leading to... What? A world condemned to never get it right? A god who gives mankind every leniency, only to have it never come around? In his book, A Canticle for Leibowitz, Walter Miller asked the question like this. Listen, are we hopeless? Are we doomed to do it again and again and again? Have we no choice but to play the phoenix in an unending sequence of rise and fall? Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, Greece, Carthage, Rome, the empires of Charlemagne and the Turk, ground to dust and plowed with salt again and again and again. Are we doomed to it, Lord, chained to the pendulum of our own mad clockwork? helpless to halt its swing. Forty years after the Israelites first stood on the banks of the Jordan, forty years after seeing the Promised Land with their own eyes, after forty years of wandering, so that every person of that faithless generation could exhaust their time on earth, now only three of that original generation remain. As the nation assembled on the bank of the Jordan once more, knowing how close their parents had come and missed the mark, 
the Israelites stood poised to once again enter into God's promise to them. If only they could do it faithfully. Leading them were Joshua and Caleb, the only two of that faithless generation that God will let enter the land of their ancestors. But for the moment, a third member of that generation was present. Their long-suffering leader Moses was blessed to once again look across the river to the land of promise. Though God will not let him enter the land, he is allowed to see it once more. And it is here, at this scene, that we find a deeper truth of the Bible. Yes, the good book is replete with despair, and from a certain vantage point it seems little more than a testament to the hopelessness and brokenness of humanity. But in this scene, which concludes the five books of Moses which are themselves an extended introduction to the Bible, here we end not on a note of despair, but of sanguine hope. Concerning Moses, God let him go up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo at the top of the Pisgah range that faces Jericho, and God let him see all the land, Gilad as far as Dan, and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah, as far as the hindmost sea and the Negev, and the round plain, the cleft of Jericho, the town of Palms as far as Soar. And the Lord said to Moses, This is the land that I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, To your seed I give it. I have let you see it with your eyes, but there you shall not cross. So there died Moses, the servant of God, in the land of Moab, by the command of God. He was buried in a valley in the land of Moab, at a site that no man knows. He had lived a ripe long life, and at the time of his death, his eyes had not grown dim, nor had his vigor fled. The children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for thirty days. Then, the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. The Torah, like the Iliad and so many other great epics of the ancient world, ends with a transition, the passing of the old generation with its leaders and its giants and its heroes. The foretime is foregone, and in its wake rises new hope for the future, for the future to raise up its customs and its traditions and its leaders and heroes, with a chance to get correct what the previous generation got wrong. There is hope because there is a second chance and a fresh start. It is under this mindset that God lets the people go up to the River Jordan and cross and enter into the Promised Land. This, this is the Bible. This is the chronicle of humankind and its God. It is not to grieve its readers, but to inspire them. Yes, there have been failures, too many to count. In one sense, it does seem, as Walter Miller said, that we have no choice but to play the phoenix in an unending sequence of rise and fall. 
and yet, the Bible always ends on a note of hope. We best appreciate this when we begin with our past. Harken back to our primeval history, to the old ways. Observe who built our history and how it relates to us here, today. Like how we can better understand Jesus and his role if we first understand Moses, Elijah, and their parts in the epic. Ask questions like, what's in a name? Is there meaning in this? Is there power or potential? What does it mean that God has a name, but no one knows what that name means or how to say it? Maybe it clues us into who God is, who is often different than how we initially imagined. Did we ever suspect that God would punish the people to justify the land? But when God says, let it rest, then it shall rest, and each day it shall keep Sabbath to the fulfillment of seventy years. Do not be afraid, for every hard time will pass, and even when hope seems nowhere to be found, hear the good news proclaimed by the runner who says that God is sovereign, the holy throne has not been usurped, and God's promises will be fulfilled. And let the wisdom of grandfathers and kings teach you that God's word is a sure promise and a strong and worthy foundation. For who but God can speak light into existence? And that light is within you, God-seeker, and it guides your footsteps. And through it all, even through abject suffering, even to the cross, God will be there, enduring with you. Through it all, may you grow to realize that God wants you, be you fearless or cowardly, rich or poor, strong or weak, blessed are you, for God wants you. And, though at times, partnering with the Holy One can feel like turning left when the destination is right, or like dirtying your nets for no reason, like fishing in the wrong place at the wrong time, take heart and be reassured that Jesus knows best and will not lead you astray. And through all the ups and downs of life, the taking two steps back with every three forward, if we just center ourselves upon God and, in times of confusion, simply fix our gaze upward, we will be okay. After all, this is the message of the Bible. No matter where you've been, you can end this chapter looking forward, with eyes full of hope. God sees where you've been where you're going, where your potential directs, and with full permissions God has decreed over you, let him, or her, go up. Some of you, familiar with the outline of the Bible, know that its moieties are the Old Testament and the New Testament. The latter, the New Testament, is distinctly Christian. It begins with the Gospels, which chronicle the time Jesus spent on earth. The Gospels are followed by an overview of the church's early history, and then by a collection of letters written between various early church leaders. Finally, the New Testament ends with the Revelation of John, which, 
as we discussed earlier, describes a descent into chaos, but concludes with sanguine eyes looking forward to the time when God will restore everything. This is the second part of the Bible, and only about a third of its entirety. The first two-thirds is the Old Testament, and as Christianity rose as a sect of Judaism, the Old Testament is actually the contents of the Jewish Bible. It ends with words from the prophet Malachi, who most scholars place roughly 500 years prior to Jesus and the New Testament era. The book of Malachi ends with God's promise to send the people a truly great prophet who will obviate God's wrath and lead the people back to God. During the days of Malachi, the people were suffering, but the words of the prophet ended in biblical fashion, hopeful and sanguine. However, if you know your Bible, particularly your Jewish Bible, then you know that I've just used a clever sleight of hand. When dividing the Bible into Old and New Testaments, I left out a subtlety, and that ledger domain made it seem like the Old Testament and the Jewish Bible, called the Tanakh, are the same thing. In fact, while they do comprise the same contents, the Old Testament and the Tanakh order those contents differently. The Old Testament ends with Malachi, but the Tanakh ends with the book of Chronicles. The end of Chronicles is the paragon of biblical hope. Recall from earlier this season our discussion about the Babylonian exile and the Great Diaspora. To recapitulate, not too long after the time of King David, Israel undertook a civil war and sundered into two kingdoms, a north and a south. A great while thereafter, the northern kingdom was overrun and conquered by the Assyrian Empire. Give or take 100 years after that, the southern kingdom met the same ill fate at the hands of the Babylonians. Those who survived the invasion were taken prisoner and brought to Babylon. But soon after, Babylon itself was conquered by Persia. And 70 years after the first Israelites were captured, Cyrus, the king of Persia, freed the Israelites. With an edict of hope, Cyrus decreed that the people could return home and rebuild their holy places. The final words of Chronicles are, In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred the spirit of Cyrus so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it into writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. Whoever is among God's people, may God be with him. Let him go up. I think the words speak for themselves. The choice lies with each individual. Indeed, it is very near to you. It is not too far that you need to ask, who will go across the sea and get it and bring it back? Rather, it is near. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. Do what? Go up. 
You can choose to look back on everything that has happened and ask what went wrong. After all, hindsight is 2020. You can choose to engage in wistful dreaming, pretending that things are different from reality. You can choose to despair, because nothing ever seems to change, so what's the point in trying? Or, you can choose to look forward, not with regret, nor cynicism, nor indifference, but with sanguine eyes, hopeful longing, and ineffable expectation. Is the world coming to the end? That's okay because God and the church will build a new Jerusalem. Did the very first humans get it wrong? We may have lost the garden, but we didn't lose the Lord. How did everything fall apart so soon after Noah started over? Not to worry, God has a plan. Did we lose our one shot at the promised land? No, God is a God of second chances. Why are we going through so much right now? It's okay, because Malachi says that the Lord has promised to restore us. Did the greatest prophet of prophets just get nailed to a cross? Don't despair, for death has no power over Jesus. Is the temple destroyed, and are we slaves in captivity? Fear not, for God is moving in the world. It's been a long time coming, but I finally heard the words proclaimed, He who wishes to return to God, let him go up. Let him go up. Thank you for joining Stories of Symmetry this episode and indeed this season. My name is Ben Laboot and it has been a true joy. Be on the lookout for announcements about when Season 3 will begin. Between now and then, you can keep up with Stories of Symmetry through blogs, episodes, and more online at storiesofsymmetry.com and on Facebook and Instagram at storiesofsymmetry. Also, don't forget to give us a like or review on your favorite podcast platform. This helps us get discovered by more people. But more than anything, I encourage you to continue seeking God and strengthening that connection in whatever way works best for you. Now, I pray you look forward, with eyes wide with hope, ready to go up. And as you do so, go with God, go in peace.